Good morning, everybody. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is J.D. Summers, and I serve as pastor here at Redemption Hill Church, and we're glad you've come to worship with us today. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7. Our world right now is, as many of you know, fixated on power. Who has power? Who gets power? How is power transferred? How do we hold people accountable for their use of power? We see a lot of conflict around power. Power pitted against power. But what is often overlooked in all of this is that there is one who has absolute power. One whose power dwarfs every lesser power, and that's God. God is the ultimate power, and it's not even close. But the fact that God has ultimate power is not always accepted, is it? Some reject it, some will dispute it, some will complain and protest, and some even think they can push back against the power of God himself. That's exactly what we find happening here in the book of Exodus. Exodus is a great showdown. It is power against power. God against the gods, the gods of Egypt. God against the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. God against the spiritual powers of darkness that run underneath and behind the surface of history, seeking to destroy God's promise, seeking to eliminate the seed seeking to foil God's plan of redemption at every point. But God has never backed down from a fight. He takes on all comers, and he does so gladly in order to display his glory so that all will know that he is the Lord. Our text today is Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. I'll read God's word, and then we'll pray together. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Father, as we read your word this morning, as we discuss it, as we explore this story and the theological truths that it contains, we ask, God, that you would reveal your glory to us. We've sung this morning of your greatness and your power. We have worshiped you because you are worthy. And Lord, we want to see more. We want to know you more. We want our hearts to be moved even more towards worship and awe and adoration. So God, magnify your name this morning in our midst through the preaching of your word. Amen. The point of this story, which is a point we'll see again and again in Exodus, is this. The superiority of God's power is displayed in his triumph over lesser powers. 
That's the point of this sermon, this text. That's what God is doing here. The superiority of God's power is displayed in his triumph over all lesser powers. This little scene right here is really a a preview. It's a prologue to the plagues. If you think of the plagues of Egypt as a prize fight, you know, 10 rounds with the knockout punch coming in the 10th, this is basically the weigh-in. This is the two sides facing off for the first time, sizing each other up and flexing a little bit. Both are announcing what they intend to do. Both are showing, listen, I have power and I am not afraid of you. And when Moses leaves this scene, the fight will be on. The plagues will begin. But here what we find in this initial clash is, is, is an interchange that really sets the tone for the ten plagues that will follow. And, and it foreshadows even what is going to come to pass. And as this scene unfolds, we see God's power spotlighted in four ways. First of all, we see a display of power performed. This is verses 8 through 10. As God tells Moses and Aaron what to do, he says, Pharaoh is not going to be interested in listening to them, so they're to perform a sign. Verse 9, it says, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Verse 10 tells us that Moses and Aaron did exactly what the Lord commanded them. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 4, Moses had ascended this mountain, the mountain of God, as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And there he had encountered God himself at this burning bush. And God had given Moses three signs to perform in order to convince his listeners when he returned to Egypt that he really had met with God. And that God really was going to do what he said he was going to do. These three signs were casting his staff onto the ground. It would turn into a serpent. Placing his hand inside his cloak, pulling it out, it would be covered with leprosy. Then he'd put it back, pull it out, it would be clean, it would be whole, healed. And then also pouring out water onto the ground, that it would turn to blood. Three signs. Now Moses had, and Aaron had performed these signs in the sight of Israel. And the people of Israel had rejoiced, they had believed, they had worshipped. We find that at the end of chapter 4. But Pharaoh was going to be harder to convince. If you remember the first time that Moses spoke to Pharaoh... He'd completely blown him off, completely rejected God's message. In fact, he'd increased the workload for the Israelites. In chapter 5, verse 9, Pharaoh had accused Moses and Aaron of lying. Exodus 5, 9 says, Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it. And listen, pay no regard to lying words. He didn't believe them. He thought they were blowing smoke. Just like the serpent in the garden, the Pharaoh claims... God did not really say that he's going to bring out this people by great power, mighty wonders. God intends to confront this unbelief. He's going to prove to Pharaoh that Pharaoh's not dealing with two superstitious old men. Pharaoh's not dealing with just a couple of con artists. He needed to know that Moses and Aaron spoke for God. So turning the staff into a snake would have been a great display before Pharaoh of supernatural power. I mean, that's not something you see every day. I don't think any of us have ever seen that. But the nature of this miracle, as we pointed out a few weeks ago, is actually significant. Because God's not just showing that he has power. He's actually sending a very specific message to the Pharaoh. It's not a random parlor trick. This is a sign that has significance. Keep in mind, Egypt was a highly religious society. 
very religious. Pharaoh is no atheist. The ancient Egyptians worshipped hundreds, if not thousands, of gods. In fact, the Pharaoh was seen as being specially empowered and appointed by the gods. Some pharaohs even considered themselves to be divine. So in the worship and in the service of these gods, miracles of transformation were actually a big deal. If you read ancient Egyptian literature, there are legends of Egyptian sorcerers transforming inanimate objects into living creatures. In fact, there's a story about a wax crocodile that's turned into a living crocodile. Even this trick of turning a staff into a snake was something that they would have been familiar with. So why would God prescribe this kind of a sign? Well, here's the message. Yahweh, this God that that Pharaoh doesn't take seriously, this God who he thinks doesn't have any jurisdiction in Egypt, this God is coming right into their house on their turf, and he's going to beat them at their own game. He's pitting his power not against their weaknesses, but against their strengths. That's what God is saying. Showing them that his power is superior to theirs. Not just that it exists, but that his power is superior to their power. In addition, the symbol of the serpent was something that the Pharaoh literally wore on his royal headdress. The hooded cobra was the largest and fiercest of the snakes. Okay, this is not just like you know, the little ringnecks or the garter snakes you might see at your house. This was a deadly, powerful, feared creature. And therefore, it was chosen as the perfect symbol for the Pharaoh. He is powerful. He is to be feared. He's the greatest and most potent authority in the land. So the sign that Moses and Aaron perform show that God is in control, even of the Pharaoh. He is nothing that God or his people should recoil from. Rather, he's simply a tool to be used in the hand of God, just like a staff. So this is a display of power that God prescribes for Moses and Aaron to perform the sign of the serpent, and they do exactly that. But after this sign of this display of power is performed, it's then parodied in verse 11. A display of power, this display is parodied. It's copied. It's imitated. It says, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret Arts. Verse 12 tells us, each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. So Pharaoh sees what Moses and Aaron have done, and he's very simply not impressed. He's not moved. He sees their display of power. They've thrown down this staff, and it's turned into a serpent. What's interesting here is it's actually a different word for serpent than the word in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses throws down his staff, it turns into Nahash, a serpent, a snake. But here, as he throws down his staff, it turns into Tanin. This is a bigger, more fearsome, more powerful creature. It's a large reptile that's sometimes even used to describe crocodiles. So this is a bigger snake, okay? This is an impressive display. But Pharaoh does not want to submit to this authoritative command of God. He doesn't want to let the people go. He doesn't want to submit to this God, Yahweh. So notice his approach. He tries to match power with power. He has his guys come in and do the same thing. In asking these magicians to come, these pagan priests, it's funny, they're actually mentioned in the New Testament by name. In 2 Timothy, Paul names them uh, Janus and Jambres. 
Um, what Pharaoh is doing in, in having these guys step up and try to do the same sign, he's not denying that Moses and Aaron really do represent God. He tried that at first. It didn't work. Okay, I guess they really are speaking for a God. And perhaps he really does have power. But now Pharaoh's looking for a reason to ignore this God. Okay, I guess he does exist, but I still don't have to listen to him. Because if this God is just another run-of-the-mill God, if he's nothing special, if the gods of Egypt have the same power as Yahweh, then Pharaoh knows he need not fear this God. He need not obey this God. He doesn't have to listen to this God. So these sorcerers, these magicians come in and they cast their staffs to the ground. And they become serpents as well. And Pharaoh goes, aha, you see, Yahweh has no claim here. He has no authority here. And this is very simply an attack on the holiness of God. Holiness has the idea not just of being sinless, but of being unique, of being set apart. And Pharaoh is denying that. He's saying there's nothing special about this God. We have plenty of gods like that here in Egypt. And so I don't need to buy what it is that you're selling. Now, as we read through a story like this, a lot of people ask the question. I, I wonder myself as I'm studying through this, what exactly is it that these pagan priests are doing? There's two options. Is this some sort of sleight of hand? Is this a cheap imitation of what Aaron did that's, you know, they convinced their audience, but it could easily be explained by their cleverness and deception. Maybe some of you guys have been to a magic show. You've seen things that if you believe your eyes, it looks amazing and magic, but there's probably a secret that explains it. Um, is that what's going on here? Or are these men actually performing a supernatural miracle? Is this a real transformation of a piece of wood into a living, breathing creature that's slithering on the ground? Which is it? Is it natural? Is it supernatural? Is it a combination of the two? Well, we don't know for sure, but I'd like to suggest what I've come to be convinced of. I think these guys really do possess spiritual power. And here's why. If we take the text at face value, it says they did the same. They did the same. And it says their staffs became serpents. So if their actions are sleight of hand, then so is Aaron's, because they did the same thing that Aaron did. But we know that's not the case. Aaron's staff transforming was a true miracle. There is nothing false or deceptive about it. And listen, if you read the book of Exodus and almost every other book of the Bible as well, if you start trying to explain everything supernatural by pointing to some sort of naturalistic cause, you're not going to have very much of the story left. and You won't have very much glory left either. I believe that what Aaron did was a literal miracle, and these guys did the same thing. So this raises another question. If that's the case, does this mean that the gods of Egypt are real? Does it mean that the gods of Egypt have power like the Most High God, like Yahweh? Because elsewhere in Scripture, we're taught that God is the only true God, that there's no one like Him, and that all other gods are nothing, literally the creations of men. Take you on a quick tour of the Scriptures. Jeremiah 16.20 says, Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. These idols that are fashioned by, hand, by the hands of men, it's nothing. It's nothing. Galatians 4.8, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul's saying, listen, there's the category of God and everything else, and Yahweh, our God, is the only one who exists in that category. 
Everything else, these other deities that you worshipped are actually not gods. Psalm 135 says, the, na- the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then derisively, the psalmist writes, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It's quite the polemic against false gods. They're nothing. Nothing. They have no power. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here's the thing. Ra, the sun god, doesn't exist. Amun doesn't exist. Horus and Osiris don't exist. And the other couple hundred gods in the Egyptian pantheon, they don't exist. So then what is the source of this power? I believe it is satanic. 1 Corinthians 10, 19, Paul says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no, idols are nothing. There's no false gods. They're not real. But Paul says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. You see, there is something supernatural going on. There is a real source of power. But it's not competing deities with the one true God. These are created beings, fallen angels, demonic powers. Deuteronomy 32.16, a condemnation on Israel's idolatry. It says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You see, any sacrifice offered to these false gods, any worship ascribed to these false deities is actually directed to demonic forces. These magicians and sorcerers may have thought they were worshiping and serving Ra or Osiris or Horus or some other god, but they had been deceived by demonic forces that aim to oppose God and enslave people that are made in his image. And friends, this same satanic power is active in the world and it will be used significantly, significantly in the future to deceive. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, that false Christs and false prophets will arise, listen, and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. There is real power in this universe that does not come from God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So I believe that what these magicians are doing in that courtroom is real. And it is significant. It is power. A display of power. Parodying, copying the power of God. So why belabor the point? Why did it take so much time? Why does it matter if this is a deceptive sleight of hand, some sort of parlor trick, or if this is a real display of supernatural power? Well, I think it matters for this reason, because the point, as we will see, is to show that God triumphs over all lesser powers, 
And God doesn't just triumph over the kind of guys that can impress all their friends at an office party. God does not just triumph over the kind of people that, you know, do birthdays on the weekend for kids. No. God triumphs over real, actual, supernatural power. These are formidable foes. Their staffs, when they throw them on the ground, become tanin. These impressive, powerful creatures that instill fear in the hearts of man. So these are formidable foes, and they can change their staffs into snakes, just like Moses and Aaron. But as the saying goes, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And that's exactly the point. This display of God's power has been performed. These guys come up with a counterfeit, a parody of the miracle. But then we see this display of power proven in verse 12. I love this. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved this part of the story. So each man cast down his staff, and they become serpents. And then what happens? But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So at the very moment that Pharaoh was most pleased that these pagan sorcerers seem to have leveled the playing field. I mean, they've just totally matched what the servants of God has done. At that point, Aaron's staff swallows up all the others, and that must have been really awkward. Okay, now what? Uh, Pharaoh, what do you want us to do now? Because we're kind of stuck. Um, But the message here is clear, isn't it? Pharaoh and his court may possess real power but they are literally no threat to God. They are no threat. This is no challenge. They might have been able to copycat the sign, but they can't stop God. They cannot stop him. They have no original ideas. It's not like they did something different. But their power is not able to stop what God is doing. That's what's symbolized by Aaron's staff swallowing up theirs. Later, these same magicians will attempt to copy the plagues. And they'll have success with the first one. They'll take water and change it into blood, just like Moses and Aaron do. They'll strike the dust and turn it into gnats, just like Moses and Aaron do. But after that, they try with a third plague and fail. They can't replicate the power of God. And at no point in the story, from beginning to end, are these pagan sorcerers ever able to stop anything that God is doing. Pharaoh doesn't go to them and ask them to stop the plagues. He has to go to God and ask God to stop the plagues. The power of God is unstoppable. His dominion is total over their power, real as it may be. This initial contest in the court of, you know, staff versus staff, serpent versus serpent, this is a preview of what will happen later because the power of God is going to triumph over all the gods of Egypt. So many of the plagues are direct assaults on the very beings that Egypt worshiped. You worship the Nile, you worship the sun, you worship the Pharaoh, watch this. God takes each of them on head to head and wins every time over the Pharaoh and his efforts. And the way that this conflict begins here in the courtroom of Pharaoh is the same way that the conflict will end. Just as the staffs of these sorcerers were swallowed up by Aaron's staff, the army of Pharaoh will soon be swallowed in the Red Sea. I think this is why you see Moses changing. Remember, we've seen Moses over the last weeks. He's afraid. He's uncertain. He's pessimistic. He doesn't think this is going to work. But as the story continues to go, this man becomes increasingly bold. His faith is growing strong because he's watching this display of power. And he's increasingly convinced 
God can handle his business, and Pharaoh cannot stand a chance. So as the story progresses, as the plagues unfold, this man Moses becomes more and more Pharaoh's equal and less and less just some outcast from Midian. So I think Moses must have, and Aaron must have been very encouraged by this. But how does Pharaoh respond? Verse 13 shows us this display of power is simply disregarded. It's disregarded. Verse 13 says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Still, still, despite this display of power, despite the clear message that's being sent, despite the proof that this God, Yahweh, was no one to be trifled with and that he would triumph over all the powers of Egypt, still, Pharaoh has no intention of submitting or giving in. His heart grows harder. The Hebrew verb here is actually in the active voice. This is one of those cases where I like the NIV and the NET translations better than the ESV. Those versions translate it that his heart became hard. No one at this point is acting upon Pharaoh. He is willfully choosing to reject this display of power. His heart grew firm. It grew strong. It is growing calluses at this point. So while God is sovereign over his heart, Pharaoh, not God in this case, is the immediate agent of the hardening of the heart. Pharaoh's doing this all by himself. Pharaoh is responsible. Later, we'll see that God directly hardens Pharaoh's heart after the sixth plague. But that will be an act of judgment on a man who has already willfully hardened his heart. So we might ask the, we might ask the question this morning, why did Pharaoh not believe? Why was he unconvinced by this miracle? Well, it should be clear from the story, Pharaoh didn't budge. He didn't believe. He didn't submit because he didn't want to. Very simply, he didn't want to. Hard-hearted people are not convinced by evidence. Pharaoh believed what he wanted to believe. And all that the evidence did was make the hardness of his heart more apparent and make him more accountable for his arrogant unbelief because he should have known better. He had all the evidence he needed. But evidence cannot change a hard heart. It just can't. Sometimes I wish it could because we have lots of evidence to share with those who do not believe. But only the Spirit of God can change a hard heart. If evidence was the key to changing hard hearts, then we could go do that. But Christ calls us to simply go preach the gospel. The preaching of the gospel may include, at times, the offering of evidence, but the primary task is simply proclaiming what is true, making the truth known, declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died as a substitute for sinners, and that he rose again from the dead. We proclaim it. We point to that truth. Evidence cannot change hard heart. There's value in evidence. It can be useful. It encourages believers. And for those that are, that are seeking and drawing near to God, it is often used as God draws them to faith. But the evidence itself can't change anybody's mind, let alone their heart. Some people will be hard-hearted when we preach the truth to them. And it's not because there's not enough evidence. It's simply because they don't want to believe. Now, this hardness of heart is sobering. But notice that this is no threat to God's plan. God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart and has told Moses that this would happen. Verse 13 says, as the Lord had said. 
So this actually isn't an interruption in the story. This is no hindrance. Things are actually going right on schedule. And God is going to use this hard-hearted man to show his power on a much bigger stage. See, because Pharaoh doesn't want to listen, because he hardens his heart, that means that the plagues are about to begin. That means that it won't just be Pharaoh and his servants who witness the showdown between God and the gods of Egypt. It's going to be very public. All of Egypt and all of Israel and even the neighboring nations will know everything that's about to go down. And all these plagues that will happen there in Egypt will expose the futility of Egypt's gods. The Nile, the cattle, the sun, the firstborn, even Pharaoh himself. And all of this, God will make himself known. That he is the Lord, that he is the God of all power, who displays his greatness in his mighty works of judgment and salvation. And what's amazing is that the magicians, these sorcerers, they will come to know. They will come to know this truth. In chapter 8, verse 19, as they try to imitate the third plague and can't, they will admit, this is the finger of God. And they'll tap out. They will. They tap out after the third plague. Pharaoh's servants will come to know. Although early on in the plagues, we see the servants of Pharaoh also having a hard heart. Chapter 10, verse 7, they appeal to Pharaoh and say, please stop. You're going to destroy the whole nation if this goes on. We can't win. Even Pharaoh himself comes to know. Chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, after the death of the firstborn, he says, just go. Go, take your wives, your kids, your cattle, everything. And then he says, and bless me also. Why would Pharaoh say, bless me also? Only if he believes that God is the supreme power, who's the only one who's able to really bless. Pharaoh will have a change of mind a few minutes later and decide to chase them down. And we know what happens at the Red Sea. The armies of Pharaoh, the chariots and horsemen, are destroyed. And then the people of Israel come to know. They come to know. I love the song of Moses, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. When the children of Israel stand on the opposite shores of the Red Sea, a free people, having just witnessed and experienced this great deliverance, do you know what they celebrate? Do you know what it is that they sing about? The power of God. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What is it that they sing about? As they stand on the shores on the opposite side, watching armor and bodies float up to the shore. They sing about the power of God that he's a warrior, that he triumphs, that he is the source of strength, and that he has used that strength to judge his enemies and save his children. Pharaoh may have disregarded God's power in the beginning, but the miraculous power on display in Exodus, it has become famous throughout all generations, hasn't it? I mean, we're talking about it today, thousands of years later. And we don't even know this Pharaoh's name. Ten rounds, a knockout punch, and God has displayed his power. And all of this, the hardness of heart, the display of power, and the outcome, all of this is sort of foreshadowed in this this way in before the title fight. 
as the two sides face off for the first time there in Pharaoh's throne room. We get a little bit of a picture about what's going to happen next. But the point is this, the superiority of God's power is displayed in his triumph over all lesser powers. And friends, that's true not just in the Exodus in Moses' day. It's true today. It's true for us. And since this is true, it has bearing on how you and I live. What should be the human response to this supreme power? We could ask, ask this question. What is the typical human response to any power? What is our response to things that we can't control? What's our response to things we can't explain? You can look around the world and see how people respond. Typically, we either fear those things or we trust in them to protect us from our fears. It's fear or trust. That's how we respond to power. And as Christians, our calling is to fear God alone. Our calling is to trust God alone because he is superior in power and triumphs over all lesser powers. There's a lot of examples we could give, but I want to touch on just two that are relevant at this very moment in time. We've been watching over the last several months a nation and even a global society that has been gripped by fear of a virus. And there's some people that are very, very afraid. They're terrified. I mean, you can be standing in line at Dillon's and cough, and people look at you like you just yelled bomb in the airport. I mean, maybe you guys have gotten some of those dirty looks. You know, they think that you're going to kill them. People are afraid. And many of them, I mean, it's, we should feel compassion for them. They've been told that this virus is deadly and uncontrollable, and it has demonstrated a kind of power, hasn't it? The power to shut down a world and its economy. It's a pretty big deal. But as Christians, we must not be afraid of a virus. I mean, the worst thing a virus can do is kill us. That's as bad as it can get. And our God has already defeated death and guaranteed our resurrection. So we need not be afraid of the virus. God is more powerful. And listen, it is important in our courage and in our fearlessness that we ground our fearlessness in the right things. Notice I didn't say don't be afraid of the virus because of these statistics. I'm not saying don't be afraid of the virus because of these medical facts that if you are healthy and don't have underlying conditions, it really doesn't pose that bad of a threat. That may be true or may not be true. That's besides the point. The point is we don't fear the virus because God is more powerful. So we're not citing statistics. We're not pointing to the latest medical evidence because here's the reality. This is true that God is more powerful than any virus. And that's true even if half the population of the United States just died from this virus. That is true even if we've buried half the members of this church due to a pandemic. This would still be true. And maybe a virus like that would pop up one day. And if that happens, we'd be saying the same thing. Don't be afraid of a virus because our God is more powerful. We point to the superior power of God that triumphs over all lesser powers. So even if this virus had been worse than the wildest predictions, we do not fear because we fear God and we trust God. We have a God who possesses a superior power. So this is important, not just to face this virus rightly, but because we need to be prepared for things that will be far worse than coronavirus. And the only way we're prepared for that, to not be afraid of real, actual power, a real threat, is if we know God and we fear him. 
I'm thankful that this church largely understands that. I mean, you guys are here singing, corporately gathering for worship. So I think a lot of us are on the same page here. But let me push into another issue that might be a little more uncomfortable. Because our nation right now is not only gripped by fear of a virus, but there's also a lot of fear regarding what's going to happen with our government. I probably don't have to inform you that we're in an election year. Did any of you guys know that? Have you heard anything about that? I don't have to tell you that there's a lot at stake in the coming election. I don't have to tell you that there's a lot at stake as far as what judges are appointed to what courts in terms of you know, who holds power in the different branches of government. There is a lot at stake, and it is a big deal. And perhaps some of you are afraid of what could happen. You're afraid of government overreach, afraid of the loss of civil and religious liberties, afraid of the further damage that could be done to our society by encroaching ideologies like postmodernism and the sexual revolution and Marxist philosophies. Those are all real dangers. It's real. That could happen. But listen, we must not be afraid. Do not be afraid of any of those things. Don't fear the government. Don't fear the power of what they can do, of what they can take away. Not because those threats aren't real. Not because it doesn't pose any danger. Those things are real. But here's why. It's because God is superior in his power. That's the point. God is superior to presidents and congresses and courts. God is superior in his power to activist groups and their poisonous philosophies. God is superior in his power to those who plot and scheme and manipulate and fund their way into influence and control. Listen, we do not fear them. We do not fear them. And that's not a naive response of burying our heads in the sand and just pretending like it doesn't exist. No, we can look at all of that honestly and acknowledge that it's real, just like the snakes crawling on the ground in front of Pharaoh's throne and say, our God is bigger than that. And we need not be afraid because of his superior power. You see, on the flip side of fear is trust. And we see this very practically in our life, don't we? And in the lives of those around us. Those who fear poverty are tempted to trust in wealth, aren't they? Those who fear loneliness trust in relationships. Those who fear emptiness trust in pleasure. Those who fear weakness trust in power. And what we're witnessing right now in our nation is a people who are gripped by a fear that the other side is going to win. There's people on both sides of the aisle panicking right now. Afraid of what will happen if the other guy gets in. What they reveal by that fear is that their trust and their hope is actually in the government. They need their side to win because they put all their eggs in that basket. But listen, if you trust in false gods and you depend on their power, don't be surprised when God exposes that. When God pulls that rug out from under you. If you trust in money for safety and freedom, don't be surprised if you may lose it all. If you seek pleasure to make you whole and fulfill you, what you will find is that those pleasures will never fill you up. They are insufficient. They lack the power to deliver what they promise. If you look to other people, they'll let you down. Whatever you look to, whether it's government or self or money and pleasure, all of it will be exposed by God to be inferior, to be insufficient, to be powerless. 
Listen, God is superior to all other powers. And therefore, here's where it gets practical for us. Therefore, we must not fear or trust in any of those lesser powers. We fear and trust in God. The staffs of the Egyptian sorcerers got swallowed up, didn't they? The armies of Pharaoh were swallowed up in the sea. But that's not all that this God's power has swallowed up. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is what? It's swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is sanctified trash talk. We need not fear that. It's empty. What do you got? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the beautiful truth. It's not just that God conquers. He does. He shares that victory with us. We who believe, we who know Christ, we share in his victory. Period. God triumphs powerfully, not just over Pharaoh, not just over the gods of Egypt, but our God has conquered sin and Satan and death itself through his son, Jesus Christ. The God we worship is a God of ultimate power, whose power has brought about a great salvation for us. Let's fear him and trust him and no one else. God, you are awesome in your power. There's no one like you. You are incomparable. You are undefeated. You gladly take on all challengers. You win every time. Lord, forgive us for our fearfulness. Forgive us for reaching out to trust in lesser powers to protect us or fulfill us, to rescue us. Lord, you alone are God and you alone are able to save. We thank you, God, for the victory that you share with all who trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we need not fear death itself. And if the sting of death is gone, if you be for us to that level, then who can be against us? We need not fear anything. Lord, we acknowledge today that there are real dangers and threats in this world. Physically, we are frail and susceptible. Socially, politically, we are subject to corruption. We see the world around us deteriorating, and we see real powers at work. Real danger exists. Lord, we don't want to minimize that, but we want to look beyond it to the God who is sovereign over all, the God whose power rules. God, take away our fear. Increase our faith that we might love you, trust you, worship you alone. Lord, I want to pray this morning for any who may be in this room who are actually vulnerable to the sting of death because they do not know you. Perhaps they know of you, they know about you, just like Pharaoh knew about you. He knew that you existed, he knew that you had power, but his heart was hardened. Pray, God, that if there are any hard hearts here today, hearts that are resistant to your word, hearts that are resistant to your gospel, hearts that are resistant to repentance and faith, I pray that you would soften them, that the power of your grace would triumph over the power of indwelling sin. God, for your glory, display your power today. 
in salvation of sinners and in the strengthening of your saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.